Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further. Now, on today's episode, our guest is Taylor Pearson, and he is the author of The End of Jobs, Money, Meaning and Freedom Without the 9 to 5. His book has been recommended by very well-known people in the industry, such as James Altucher and Derek Sivers. And his book and his work have also been covered in well-known business publications, such as Business Insider, Huffington Post and The New York Observer. And in today's episode, Taylor will be sharing with us his message behind his book, as well as his own journey overall, how entrepreneurship from his point of view is really the path forward if you take a long-term point of view and how each of us can get there. So I hope you enjoy today's discussion. And with that, let's welcome Taylor. Taylor, hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I'm so excited to have you on because I first came across your work on Twitter. I think I think it may have been Naval Ravikant who who probably retweeted something from you. So I looked at your Twitter feed. It was really interesting. So super happy to have you on the show. So what I was thinking is that that for the purposes of this discussion, I would like to split it up into two parts. I wanted to spend some part of the conversation on your book and your message there. And then I also wanted to spend some time of the discussion on your own journey and your own story, because you yourself have gone through a transition, correct? You were in a job before, and then you now you are running your own business. Yeah, that sounds fun. Okay. All right. So I wanted to start with one of Peter Thiel's questions. So Peter Thiel apparently asks these questions anytime he's hiring someone and you've cited these questions in your book also. So uh, what important truth do you believe that very few people agree with you on? Oh, so I, did, I started keeping a list of my, I thought it was a great question. So I have, I have a running list in my Evernote of thoughts. Um, maybe the most applicable one to this, um, your audience, um, is I think marketing will be the most valuable, uh, skill set, um, professional skill set, uh, over the next, you know, 30 to 50 years. Interesting. And, and why do you say that? Uh, if you look at just kind of the, the secular trends, uh, in business, it's, it's getting easier and easier to make stuff, uh, and it's getting harder and harder to distribute it. Right. So like in the early 20th century, uh, the bottleneck was really, uh, mass manufacturing that you had, um, you know, from the early to mid 20th century, you had kind of this rising middle class and you had a lot of people that they just wanted these products. Um, they needed these products. And if you could produce these products, uh, efficiently and cheaply and, you know, drive down the cost of production, uh, it was relatively uh, easy to sell them. There wasn't as much um, mm. kind of sales and marketing. And increasingly, uh, the scarce resource is becoming int- attention, right? Like, our, you know, our attention is more and more saturated. Um, and it's uh, getting access to, you know, particularly, um, you know, high earners or people with more discretionary income. Their attention is also the um, the, the most valuable thing. It's, the, it's a very scarce resource. And so mm. I think... Um, being able to uh, get access to attention um, and, you know, market and position uh, yourself or your brand or your company uh, is increasing where this is going. And I think, I mean, you could talk about this in a big scale as, as well, like 
um, what is Facebook, uh, if not a marketing company, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, by, by aggregating all the eyeballs, by having everyone uh, reading it, they can kind of set the terms to the producers of the content. You know, if you want to get your content on Facebook, you have to follow um, you have to follow Facebook's rules. Right. It doesn't matter, you know, how good you think your content is or, or how well it's been written or whatever, because they have the attention and they're, you know, in a way sort of like this, you know, basically a huge advertising and marketing platform. Right. Um, they are the ones that set the rules. That's a, that's a really interesting talk. And, and so you think that a lot of people don't agree with you on this? Yeah, and I think, you know, Teal sort of makes this point in his book that often uh, in Silicon Valley or really anywhere, there's always this talk about, um, you know, just you build a great product and everyone mm-hmm. uh, will show up. And you know, it's very rarely the case that uh, the sales and marketing, uh, particularly in the early stages, are just so important. You know, the rule of thumb, I've heard people say, is sort of the first uh, two to three years of uh, any company, you, you want to spend 80% of your resources on uh, sales and marketing, you know, your time, money, everything. And I think that's like, that's probably a pretty good, um, heuristic. So yeah, I think people, you know, kind of in their minds underweight how important sales and marketing is because, and I think also because it doesn't have a good, you know, you think of the sleazy car salesman yeah. or the, <laughs> yeah. uh, the spammy internet marketer or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is true that in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of, I mean, the, the premium on, on an engineer or someone who makes stuff, right? I mean, that's, that's where the premium lies right now. And maybe, uh, maybe the importance on distribution and the ability to, to distribute is a little bit less, you know, um, what do you think this means for someone though? So if let's say we, we, we do agree that yes, marketing is, or the ability to distribute to the right people is the right skill to develop. What does that mean for someone? The obvious implications, you know, everyone should get better or everyone should study and learn at least the basics of kind of marketing, uh, marketing and sales and persuasion. One practical application would be, you know, you're an engineer, uh, and I've heard this story a number of times, but you know, you, an engineer sits down, uh, he, he reads two books about sales and marketing. Uh, he puts together a proposal for, you know, why he should get a 15% raise, uh, and goes into his manager's office and, you know, he uses all these sales and marketing things and he gets a 15% raise. Uh, like in the short term, that's a very good use of time generally. Mm. Um, but even you know, like being able to have that compound over the long run, right. That every time you have those interactions, whether it's, you know, a salary negotiation or you're selling something to, a uh, a client as a freelancer, um, you know, those marginal improvements in kind of sales and marketing and persuasion add up to be very significant. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So then let's talk about your, your book and the message behind your book. So your book is called the end of jobs. Can you briefly summarize the sort of the main thesis of your work there? Yeah. So the big idea is if you look at, you know, I talked about kind of the, just like long-term secular trend, we're seeing away from kind of um, the production of the products to the distribution of the products. Uh, I think we're seeing sort of the same thing in terms of um, how work is organized. So um, there's a, a good economist, uh, or economist I like named uh, Ronald Coase. And he has a paper called The Nature of the Firm. It's from like the 1930s, I believe. Hmm. And he kind of asked why do firms exist? And his answer is transaction costs, that it's really uh, expensive. You know, the labor market is, compared to a lot of other markets, particularly illiquid uh, and particularly opaque. You know, unlike um, if you want to trade uh, securities or equities, you you can see, you know, how many shares are available at what strike price, et cetera, et cetera, where it's very hard to find that for for your job. It's very hard to know kind of like what all the other 
positions are. Um, but what's been happening is that's getting much easier. So, you know, you think about like the world before LinkedIn or after LinkedIn or before um, Upwork or after Upwork, all of a sudden it's made this labor market a lot more uh, liquid. And so uh, kind of the obvious uh, implication of that is as that market gets more li- liquid and more transparent, uh, the transaction costs uh, get lower and lower. Uh, mm-hmm. And so this shift from, you know, everyone has a job with a company because it used to be, you know, the search cost and the transaction cost to bring people into the company used to be very high. Mm-hmm. Those costs are going down. And so, uh, you know, companies are doing a lot more outsourcing and contracting um, and working with, you know, kind of smaller providers on a, an as needed basis, as opposed to, um, you know, full-time, uh, employees. Correct. And, and what I found very interesting in your book is that you are, you're saying that this applies not just to, I mean, the traditional thinking is that, you know, yeah, when you think about outsourcing, you think about slightly lower end jobs, I guess, so, you know, like a call center employee or something. Uh, but you are saying this is across the board. Yeah, so my thinking was really shaped. I spent two years in Asia, mostly in Vietnam, uh, and uh, you know I had pro- you know probably like most Americans, kind of like my impression of um, maybe Asia in general, but Vietnam in particular. You know, I knew the Vietnam uh, American War, um, and you know, like the images in my head were kind of like you know rice paddies. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it's a, basically like a, a very rural agricultural country. And, and then I show up there and I think it was, I don't even there like a month. And I went to this conference at uh, a university um, in Ho Chi Minh city. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's maybe a thousand students there. I'll speak uh, you know, very competent English um, considering, you know, it wasn't their native language. They didn't grow up with it in school or anything. A lot of the, you know, had self-taught or uh, studied in school, you know, computer programming design, uh, super valuable skills. And, you know, I was kind of like sitting there comparing these people to people I went to college with. Mm. Uh, and I was like, I would much rather hire these people than like most of the people, you know, that I went to school with in the U S and, you know, why wouldn't you like they're, you know, on a, a skills basis, they're, uh, as good or better. And all of a sudden you have access to them, right? which is, you know, we can talk over Skype, we can talk over Slack. Um, you know, we can send, you know, design briefs back and forth over Google docs, um, all of a sudden, uh, again, these transaction costs have come way down. And so it's much more accessible. So yeah, I think kind of what we've seen happen to what you know, my call uh, blue collar work or uh, kind of more industrial work is very much going to happen to, it is happening right now, kind of will continue to happen to more traditional kind of middle class, middle manager, white collar jobs. Right, right. And there's this concept of limits that you talk about in your book which I found very interesting. Can you talk about that and, and how you can apply that concept to careers? Yeah, so uh, it's based on the ideas from a book called The Goal by uh, Ellie Goldratt. He was a consultant in the, uh, the 1980s, I believe. And he was concerned with uh, kind of maximizing the efficiency of, of a factory, of a, a manufacturing company. And so what he found is, you know, you imagine... Uh, you have an, an assembly line, you know, in this case, let's say you have an assembly line for um, mailing letters. So you have, you know, one person uh, writing the letters, one person putting the letters in the envelope and one person, um, you know, addressing the envelope and putting a stamp on it. So, you know, if what's happening is, let's say, you know, the person uh, writing the letters takes three times as long as everyone else, mm-hmm. uh, they're the bottleneck. And yeah. so the, it doesn't matter, you know, if you take 10 more people and you put them on uh, a stamp duty, 
you're not going to speed up. You're not going to produce any more letters because the bottleneck is you've got this one guy or one guy or girl that can only write so many, uh, so many letters. Mm -hmm. So you have to address whatever the bottleneck is in the system in order to, uh, you kind of increase the throughput. Mm -hmm. So if you kind of zoom that out to uh, a macroeconomic thing, if you will, what I think we've seen over the past, call it 700 years of history, is that uh, societies run into these bottlenecks and they eventually overcome them. So, you know, uh, 300 years ago, the bottleneck was primarily uh, agriculture and land, uh, that you needed uh, more land and more people to farm it. And it was producing enough food. You know, this is uh, kind of the era of Thomas Malthus and like, can we produce enough food? Um, and that was the bottleneck. And eventually we developed technologies that 90% of people in the United States were farmers in 1850. And now that number is something like 2%. And yet we're able to produce more, um, you know, more calories per capita than we were uh, 165 years ago. Um, so then we kind of went through this industrial age where uh, the bottleneck was kind of mass manufacturing. So like I was talking about earlier, kind of like the late 19th, early 20th century, this shift from farms to factories where you have, you know, machinists and you have this increase in uh, industrial labor. Uh, and that was the major bottleneck. And that's where most of the people were occupied. Mm-hmm. And increasingly through, uh, you know, automation and globalization and, and moving some of those roles uh, or that production overseas, Again, we've had like similar increases in efficiency where um, all of a sudden using, you know, far less uh, human capital or human labor, we're able to produce the same things. And, you know, consequently for the people in those careers, uh, you know, the law of supply and demand applies, right, which is, you know, the the supply of those jobs uh, is decreasing. Uh, and so, you know, consequently, you know, the demand is going down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think over the last half of the 20th century, we kind of saw this shift from uh, factories to what you might call like traditionally like knowledge work. Uh, so people coming out of uh, factories and moving into uh, offices where they're doing different types of information processing. Uh, and I think what we're seeing now is a transition from that sort of knowledge work um, to uh, what I would call like more entrepreneurial labor where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, AI, um, automation more broadly, machines more broadly are, you know, as increasingly able to, you know, those same pressures that happen to industrial work of globalization and automation are now happening uh, to um, kind of middle management uh, and traditional, what we might call knowledge work. And so increasingly the, um, the scarce resource, the bottleneck is not, um, it's not knowledge work anymore, but it is this kind of entrepreneurial uh, labor. Right. Yeah. So I found this concept really, really interesting because the way I understood, uh, you know, what you'd written in your book was that sort of wealth creation happens at the limits, at at whatever the bottleneck is. So if if some time back, access to capital was one of the main reasons why people were not able to sort of take two steps above what they were doing. Uh, That's where, you know, all the banks suddenly became so powerful because they were the ones who were controlling access to capital. And so now you're saying that uh, you know, just being able to do knowledge work is no longer sort of the 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 limit, so to say, because now that's going to become way more efficient with AI and automation and machines. And so uh, the next sort of uh, step change is going to be entrepreneurship. When you say entrepreneurship, are you, are you talking about creation? Like the person who who creates jobs is the one who wields power? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, I think the... 
how you define entrepreneurship is uh, is tricky and consequential. Um, I think the definition I use in the book is uh, it's the process of uh, creating and connecting systems rather than uh, than maintaining them. Hmm. Um, but I, I think this idea that yes, it's this idea of um, of novelty of a novel connection and novel creation uh, as opposed to uh, sort of maintaining things. Uh, in kind of the steady state they are. It's a, it's more a process of, you know, cre- destruction and creation alternately as opposed to um, kind of a steady state maintenance. Right, right. So, so you know, this is where I want, I'm going to get a little bit tactical, right? Because everyone is now talking about, yeah, you know, do your own thing. The internet makes it so easy to do your own thing. And I think even in your book, you do talk about that, you know, how if you can figure out some niche that you can target, that it's now possible to create a very profitable business is based on very narrow niches right so how do you how do you suggest someone start you know like someone is just like working i mean imagine someone is working at i don't know like a procter and gamble or a linkedin and they they want to do something on their own what what can they do sure so uh the two paths that i see people succeed with the most reliably um one is what i would call like an apprenticeship so i think um, and, and this is very much my story. So, uh, just to give you some background on myself, I, uh, I had an undergrad degree from, uh, a small school in Alabama in history. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, I taught English, uh, abroad for a year. Um, and then I kind of stumbled across this idea, uh, of people talking about apprenticeships, which is like, you know, instead of, um, going to get another degree or um, getting a job at maybe a larger company, can you get a role at a smaller company or a startup where you're going to be working directly with the founder or directly with the executive team? And the type of work you're going to be doing is more of this entrepreneurial work. It's going to be more of this uh, entrepreneurial labor and sort of use that role as a way to um, educate yourself, as a way to like learn that skill set, you know, in the same way you would learn, you know, learn Spanish, learn anything else. It's just a skill set you there's rules, there's guidelines, you practice it, you get better at it. Um, and finding a sort of apprenticeship role uh, where you can do the kind of a, the type of work you're doing is more entrepreneurial uh, and you're also getting paid for it, right? And you so you can sort of, um, you can, you know, cash flow that education or you can self-fund um, so, that education. Right. So just a quick follow, follow up on that. When you say apprenticeship, uh, is it just a job in a smaller company? And so by the, by definition because it's like a you know 10 people company you're just going to be doing a lot of that initial heavy lifting which you know involves putting in place all the systems and product and whatnot or or are you meaning something else so in the vast majority of cases that's what i mean the heuristic i I usually give people is uh an apprenticeship is optimizing for learning over earning Hmm. whereas a traditional job you're trying to kind of maximize your uh, earnings oftentimes at the cost of um, right. kind of the, the long-term learning potential. So right. taking a role, where, you know, if you're working at Procter and Gamble, could you take a, a 30% uh, salary cut to go work at a company where you're going to be learning, you know, five times as much, gotcha. and that you know yeah. could potentially in the same way, like you know, you invest in graduate school, you make a, uh, you know, you reduce your earning potential in the short term, uh, making a probabilistic bet that you're going to be able to 
uh, optimize or maximize that uh, even farther in the long term. So kind of making that same gamble, just in a different structure. Right. And 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 so you're not emphasizing the, the coaching piece though, right? So it's not like someone at the company has to be actively coaching you. I mean, if they are, that that's wonderful. But it's more because you're in such an early stage company, you will by definition end up learning a lot more. I think so. I think what I found was... Um, you know, the position, I took a position at, a, you know, is I think the company you had, I was maybe the, th- the 10th or 12th person hired. Yeah. Uh, so a very early stage company and kind of my thinking going in was, okay, great. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm going to work directly with the founder. I had, you know, uh, you know, two one-on-ones with the founder, uh, every week where we would discuss, uh, you know, marketing strategy and what the company was doing and everything else. And what I really found was, um, you know, th- those were definitely helpful, um, and you know, I'm I'm in favor of mentorship, and that's great. But really, the learning curve for me was, um, or where the learning came from was just, you know, every day I kind of had to like get up and figure something new out. Hmm. You know, I, I'd never done video marketing before, and I, you know, I had a month to put together a video marketing campaign, <laughs> and so uh, all of a sudden I had to learn a lot about how video marketing works in a very short uh, period of time. So that sort of um, uh, pressure, that sort of intensity that I think is kind of endemic to early stage companies tends to force or tends to accelerate the learning curve. And do you have any suggestions for how some how you can identify a good company to work at? Like, do you have any parameters that you think about? Uh, so I think small uh, is an important parameter. Um, you know, there's some exceptions to that. Sometimes companies will like you know spin off smaller divisions, mm-hmm. uh, but somewhere where you're you know kind of the direct person above you. Uh, is going to be someone with uh, sort of executive credentials of some site, whether that's founder uh, or kind of like the the key executive circle. So you're really working with the the founding team um, of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the other thing is, yeah, the heuristic I go back to is just like, is this a, is this a situation where you're optimizing for learning? So looking at, you know, when you sit down and you look at the company and you talk to them and ask, you know, what you're going to be doing for the first six months to a year there, is it a situation where you're going to kind of be doing the same thing you already know how to do, or is it going to be uh, a situation where there's going to be a lot of potential to learn and develop new skills? Gotcha. So then going back to the question of that, okay, you know, if, if I want to do something, I, I realize that, you know, entrepreneurship is sort of the way forward. I can either try and do this apprenticeship thing or, you know, go work at a small startup. Uh, and it, what is the other path? So the other path is um, what I call stair-stepping. So, uh, one of the shifts we've seen, you know, particularly brought on by the internet, is um, kind of the minimum viable scale uh, for business has gone down dramatically. So, you know, if you're dealing with um, the company, I, the small company I worked with was uh, a manufacturing company. Mm-hmm. Um, we manufactured in uh, primarily in China um, and then distributed primarily in North America, um, in Mexico, the U.S., and Canada. Um, and what I saw happen was, you know. When the company started, it would have been kind of like mid 2000s, like 2005, and the first production run uh, they did, I want, it was supposed to be a hundred thousand dollars or one hundred fifty thousand dollar purchase order, which at the time was unheard of low in China. You just you could not, you know, previously it just it been purely multinational companies that could show up to China uh, because you know the minimum purchase order just to get started was you know a million dollars or more. Um, and now, I mean, the last uh, 12 months, I talked to people who are doing um, manufacturing purchase orders um, on the order of you know, less than $5,000 or less than $3,000. Mm. So it's an incredible drop in the barrier to entry. 
uh, in a very, very short period of time. And, you know, I, I use manufacturing because I think it's kind of like the least likely example. But, you know, you think about the cost of setting up a, um, a storefront on the Internet in terms of like an e-commerce site, like a, a Shopify store um, or a WordPress store or, you know, just setting up a WordPress website with a, a PayPal buy button on it. Um, it's become very, very low. Hmm. Uh, and so what this means is all of a sudden there are these uh, very viable niches um, where you can learn on your own in a very inexpensive fashion. So uh, the example in the book I talk about is a guy named uh, Rob Walling, who his first company uh, was, uh, he sold information products about how to build uh, duck boats. So uh, if you're not a duck hunter, as I assume most of your <laughs> listeners aren't, um, it's these, if you're, if you're a duck hunter, you build these boats, which you camouflage with different camouflage things, tarps and stuff, and you go hide in the boat and you wait for the ducks to fly over, and then you, you pop oh, out and you uh, <laughs> you shoot the ducks. Okay. Uh, so this is you know this is very you know it's, duck hunting is not that huge of an industry, and he was selling uh, I think it was like a you know a fifty dollar guide hmm. uh, where he researched and he just explained to people if, if you wanted to build one of these things yourself you could go to Home Depot and you you know you buy such you know this equipment and da da. And some percentage you know there's a number of people who every month think I want to build a duck boat and they go on the Google and they search how to build a duck boat and uh, his site pops up because he learned, you know, search engine optimization to make his site show up at the top. And some percent of those people bought his uh, duck boat ebook. And I think the business made like maybe a thousand dollars a month, something like that. Uh, But the point was uh, it cost him almost nothing to start. Um, You know, he did the research. um, I'm not sure if he was a duck hunter or not. I don't think he was, but he just did the research online and maybe he bought a couple things at Home Depot and he set up a WordPress website, um, and he set up you know a PayPal button where people could click buy, and they would you know after they bought it, they would get an email with his uh, you know how to build your duck boat guide. Yeah. Um, and he learned all these skills, right? Like he started to learn about how to you know how to WordPress websites work, how to search and optimization work, hmm. um, how do you deal with you know customer support, you know how to respond to customer support tickets, what is a customer support system, uh, and then he slowly started basically adding other products on. So he had a, a duck boat site, and he had a I think a wedding, a wedding building business, a wedding website building business. So if you wanted to get married, you'd, um, this was like mid 2000. So it was before they kind of had those one click wedding website mm. services and, right. you know, yeah. for a thousand dollars, you would build, you know, your, uh, Tina and Joey get married.com website. Gotcha. Uh, he had one that was an electrician's job board, I think, um, helping <laughs> uh, like electricians in maybe it's like somewhere in Ohio. It was like a local electrician's job board or something. Um, and he had four or five of these little businesses, and each one he kind of was adding to hmm. uh, his skill set, right? You know, one he would learn search optimization, one he would learn email marketing, one he would learn WordPress, uh, and all of these carried over to uh, the other businesses. So he was able to self fund this education, and eventually, um, all these things in aggregate became uh, a pretty significant. Um, you know, it was it was enough that he could at that time, uh, leave his full-time job and work on, um, his businesses full-time. Right. And then since then, I guess that's about 12 years ago, 10 or 12 years ago, uh, he's bought and sold a number of software as a service companies. And I think most recently he sold he had an email marketing company called drip, hmm. uh, which was acquired, but I don't think the, the fee was disclosed, but, uh, I think for a lot more than his duck boat ebook yeah. business, yeah. Yeah. uh, would have been acquired for, but it, you know, it's kind of this, it's an interesting story. And I think, uh, very telling because, uh, you know, he got started very small, but he sort of stair-stepped his way up 
building his skill set uh, in a very low risk way into something that ended up being uh, very substantial. Right. No, that, that's a really, really good story. And I, I think so what I'm really actually very, very curious about is that how do you find these niches? Like, you know, and you said like this guy was probably not even a duck hunter himself. So he somehow came across that, you know, wow, there seem to be a bunch of people who are duck hunters who are Googling this thing and I should create something for them. So, you know, if, if you're like a regular person, like how do you find some of these untapped niches that you could potentially build something for? So I think at the time, what he did, there was, um, I, I was briefly involved in this, but there was kind of a, there was a big, I guess you'd call it like a, a Google arbitrage phase of the internet where, uh, you could go onto Google's keyword tool mm. and kind of look at how much people you could look at what sites were ranking and how much uh, advertising revenue those sites were generating and how much traffic they were generating. You could kind of calculate out, uh, you know, which keywords are generated. You know, they have a lot of traffic and a lot of advertising revenue and relatively little competition. So that if I built a website targeting this niche or this keyword, it, w- it would be a, a good you know, yeah. kind of like a niche business opportunity. Yeah. Um, I think that that's gotten a lot more competitive hmm. um, in the last uh, 10 years. So the usual guidance I give people uh, is uh, sort of like the scratch your own itch advice, this idea that uh, most good products, most good companies are built by someone trying to scratch their own itch, right? They have some problem uh, that they're dealing with in their daily life, whether it's in their business or uh, in the company they work for or it's a consumer product. Uh, and they build a product and they build a service to um, to try and fix that. And so uh, I guess to kind of continue Rob's story, his his first big or his most his first kind of uh, big successful product was uh, a tool that was an SEO research tool. So he had all these websites. Uh, I think the primary marketing channel for all of them was uh, SEO. It was very hard to find kind of this algorithm I just described of, you know, what are the the high traffic, high uh, advertising revenue, low competition keywords mm. uh, was very difficult to find, right? You had to, to go through and comb uh, the, um, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of keywords or whatever that uh, are keyword phrases that get put into Google and identify the ones that is relevant to your site and how to do them is very hard. Uh, and so he had a tool called, I think it was, I can't remember what it's called now, uh, but basically what it did was it would look at your website um, and it would kind of find uh, keywords that you were accidentally ranking for, hmm. uh, but that had pretty decent traffic. And then if you wrote an article about them or you created a page about them, um, you would probably rank, you know, on the top four. And so it would generate a lot of additional relevant traffic because it, it was relevant because it was something you're probably already sort of ranking for on accident. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that was you know, that was his, uh, that was the problem he was dealing with in his business. Hmm. He was trying to figure out how to find these keywords. And so he created, um, you know, he built like a simple program to do it. Uh, and then he turned around and started selling it to other people. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, there were of course lots of other people and in, in the same situation that they had these kinds of websites or, you know, they even had larger websites and they were trying to identify, you know, we're running a blog and we're posting 20 blog posts a month, but what should each of these be about? And he had a, he had a solution for that. Um, okay. and then, the, his next product, which was email marketing, was the same thing, which was all of a sudden he had this software product um, and most of his revenue was coming through email marketing, but the email marketing tool he was using wasn't very effective. And he said, you know, wow, like this is already my number one sales channel and this the product I'm using isn't even very good. Um, and now at this point, you know, he knew, he learned a lot about software. He learned a lot about marketing. He learned about 
uh, you know, product management and all these things. And he had the resources, both in terms of skill set and financial and like professional network that he could go out and he could launch kind of a much more ambitious, larger mm-hmm. software as a service marketing automation suite. Right. Yeah. So, so another follow-up question to that, which is probably going into too much of the tactics, but in case you have a recommendation that if I'm trying to figure out, okay, you know, what are my itches, so to say, that I can scratch, is there a systematic way to figure that out? Because, you know, oftentimes they can, you, know, you can sit down and try and think, okay, you know, what are really the problems that I have? And a lot of problems that you think about can be too big for you to really tackle in a very effective way, or you just don't think that you can do something very good about them right now. So is there a systematic way you can try and identify, you know, these are the problems that I I myself have and potentially others have? Uh, Yes. The question I like is, uh, what's a problem you have that you can build a solution for, for less than a hundred dollars in less than a week? Hmm. So what's something that, it's something that's bothering you and you, you can think of some solution that you could build uh, and it would cost you a hundred bucks and you could do it, you know, in a week or a long weekend. And I think the nice thing about that is, yeah, I think it's easy to get stuck on this. Like, I don't have an idea. What do I do? But inevitably going back to Rob's story, like what you see is you start working on one thing, you start working on duck boat eBooks and it'll lead you into something else, which is, uh, you know, uh, SEO keyword, you know, SEO keyword identification software. And there was no way for him to know going in the duck boat ebooks was going to lead to, um, right. you know, software as a service marketing automation. Uh, he probably didn't even know what software as a service or marketing automation was at the time. Um, but all of a sudden it, it led to something. So I think starting with these very small, what's something small and discreet that I could do, uh, where the cost of failure is really low, right? You know, like if you spend a weekend um, and a hundred bucks on something, it doesn't work out. Uh, it's, you can write that off as a learning expense. Right, right, right. Okay, that's an interesting way to go about it. Okay. So I want to spend some time on your own story then. So you, you briefly touched, about, touched on this, that uh, like you have an undergrad and then you, you were an English teacher for some time in Vietnam. What was your transition story like? Can you, can you walk us through what you were doing before you actually wrote this book and, and then the, you know, the eventual transition to now running your own consulting business and you write a lot? Uh, you, you're, this, you're doing this full time now, right? Uh, I am, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Sure. So yeah, as I mentioned, I have a, uh, I was an undergrad, uh, in history at a small school in Alabama. Um, I taught English for a year after school, uh, actually in Brazil. Okay. And when I was in Brazil, uh, the way the English teaching kind of worked is you would t- t- typically teach classes in the mornings before school or before people went to work. And then you teach classes in the afternoons and evenings after kids got off school or after people got off work. Mm. Uh, and so I had this like big, chunk in my middle of the day from, you know, maybe 10 or 11 a.m. to uh, 3 or 4 p.m. where I was kind of just sitting at the office and, and didn't have anything to do or, or didn't have much to do. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I started reading about entrepreneurship and business um, and, you know, marketing and all these kinds of things. Uh, and I, I did, I, I mentioned that kind of a similar thing to Rob. I built a few, maybe six or 12 sites similar to his sort of duck boat ebook, oh, okay. uh, tar- uh, targeting uh, you know, very specific, I think kitchen furniture or kitchen cabinetry. They were mostly in like the kitchen, yeah, the kitchen, kitchen remodeling. So were you uh, like industry. selling, were you selling furniture? Uh, no, I was selling advertising. So there, okay. there's a program called Google AdSense where you can just put, um, you can put some code from Google on your website. And every time someone clicks on an ad, a Google ad, you get a percentage of, um, 
of the commission mm-hmm. or the, the the advertising revenue. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just started doing this kind of like in between classes, uh, and it was this great learning tool that you know I'd never built a website before, and so I had to like learn how to build a WordPress website. I had to learn how to you know, uh, set up a hosting plan. I had to learn what DNS was, mm-hmm. um, and then you know I get the website set up, and now I, how do I get people to show up to the website? It's like, well, you know, what is search engine optimization, and you know how do you uh, how do you get your website to show up in uh, Google and how do you get your website to show up in Bing? So I started developing uh, these skills. So I did that for about uh, a year um, and kind of got to the point where uh, it wasn't a very good business, as you might imagine, um, but I'd learned a lot. It was a really great learning experience. And so I decided that uh, what I wanted to do was um, go find another company where I could say, hey, you know, I've developed this skill set that I think would be valuable to you. Uh, and I really want to learn a lot more. So I kind of went looking for uh, apprenticeships. And I ended up uh, working with, um, again, like a, a small company, a startup based in San Diego, an e-commerce company. Um, and I worked with them for uh, about two years uh, doing what I'd learned, uh, using the skills I'd learned, kind of building uh, my own website. So I started off doing primarily SEO. Uh, that was what I learned. And then increasingly um, started doing the rest of the marketing and eventually uh, most of the marketing uh, and sales, uh, just because, you know, the company was growing quickly. And so all of a sudden there were all these, you know, kind of positions to step up into because, you know, when I joined, there were 12 people, you know, within a year, I think we were at something like 25 people. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's kind of a lot of room to move up. Um, so I worked with them for two years. Um, and then after that I was doing, uh, I left to basically do freelance consulting, our, our freelancing, uh, marketing work. So the same stuff I was doing with the company, um, I started doing that on a, a freelance basis using kind of the networks and the contacts had built up uh, over the last three years. Uh, I did that for about a year and I was basically moonlighting as a, uh, a book writer. Um, so I was my kind of, you know, my full-time thing when I did professionally was marketing automation and uh, like business process consulting. So um, standard operating procedures. I did a lot of work with, with that kind of stuff at the, the e-commerce company. Um, and so I, I moonlit for maybe an hour a morning. I would work on uh, this book, um, and then I would kind of do my my freelance marketing stuff. And after about a year, uh, the book came out. Ended up doing a lot better than I expected, and that kind of turned into the consulting and the business coaching and the stuff I do now. So, right, uh, it was again the sort of like stair step. Everything led to something else without me quite knowing where it was going. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I mean. It, it looks like the book is sort of a reflection of your own story in some ways. Uh, what what kind of consulting do you do now? Uh, mostly it's small business coaching. So okay. working with um, founders uh, or small business owners, typically uh, like half a million to five million in revenue. Gotcha, gotcha. You know, it's it's really impressive. And one thing which I would love to learn more about is that your book is, I mean, if, if someone takes a look at your book or, you know, your, your website, your Twitter profile, you have recommendations from people like James Altucher and Derek Sivers, I, I think Chris Dixon, Naval Ravikant, they're all following you. So how, how did that happen? Like, did you reach out to them or, you know, they just happened to come across your book? Um... Yes, yeah, so I'm excited to think how each of them happened. Uh, with James, uh, a couple people read my book and recommended it to him, and then he ended up reading it hmm. and liked it, and so we connected like that. Um, Derek, uh, I actually met Derek uh, in Southeast Asia when I was over there working, 
Um, and so I'd known him uh, for a couple of years when the book came out. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I guess the rest of those, uh, I mean, I guess the, the Twitter thing is almost separate. Um, I've, I've been on Twitter, I don't know, maybe five or six years now. And I just, it was always kind of a, I meet the most interesting people on Twitter. Like it's by far my favorite uh, social network. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I mean, mostly was just using it as a way to like find articles and find interesting things to read. And then kind of over time I started to, uh, share articles and share interesting things I was finding with other people. Uh, and then I think just kind of gradually over time, I started to have perspectives and things I wanted to say about those articles, not just sharing them anymore. Uh, and so that kind of, you know, that was sort of me starting to write more and talk more and that spiraled into, uh, connecting with more people. Yeah. So how, I mean, unless Derek Sivers is just hanging out on the night, how did you meet Derek Sivers uh, in Southeast Asia? Uh, we were at a business conference. We, okay. But we, uh, we were at the same business conference in uh, Thailand in, I think, 2012. I see. I see. Uh, but I think your story is really illustrative of the fact that, you know, how the, 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 the step function that you talk about, that if you keep on investing, it can lead you to meet more and more interesting people and do more and more interesting work and open up more opportunities. So you just sort of get started, I guess. Um, I want to end with a quote which also I found on your Twitter profile. So the, you had this quote for a long time, which is apparently a Derek Sivers quote, which is, what are you optimizing your life for? So can you talk about that and your thoughts on that quote? Uh, yeah, so I, I read, I don't know when Derek wrote that, but I, I read that from Derek at some uh, a few years ago and it was always kind of rattling around in the back of my head. I think everyone is optimizing their life for something. Uh, most people aren't aware of what it is. Um, so, you know, if maybe you're optimizing your life for fame or social status uh, or money or, uh, you know, what you know, you're optimizing your dating life for a certain type of person or whatever it is. Uh, and for one, being, you know, trying to become more self-aware about what it is you're optimizing your life for uh, is generally a good practice, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think my, my reflection, it was kind of uh, what I was optimizing my life for was interesting. Uh, that given, you know, when I looked at like when I'd come to forks in the road of different paths, I could choose uh, the the heuristic that I seemed to be using uh, without being totally aware was I, I just picked the thing that was most interesting to me, um, as, you know, kind of assuming I could um, pay the bills and keep everything going. Mm. Um, and so, you know, in terms of, you know, when I was picking books to read, uh, you know, even when I was doing marketing consulting, I was mostly reading, um, you know, books about technology more broadly or philosophy or history um, and not as much about, you know, kind of the, the immediately applicable, um, right. sales thing. It was always sort of, uh, I was always trying to find ways that, you know, talking about like moonlighting and writing the book that kind of isn't the advice most people would have given me out of, you know, grow your consulting business, double down your consulting. I was like, you know, I could do that and I would, you know, I'd make more money, but it just, this book is really interesting to me mm-hmm. and I just rather, um, you know, assuming I can, you know, pay the bills and keep everything going, I'd rather just work on this thing. Uh, that is interesting. And I think uh, in in retrospect, and, you know, we'll see if this is true in 10 years, but I think it will be, uh, that's actually been uh, a better decision, I think, both in terms of just kind of my happiness, life satisfaction, how I feel on a day-to-day basis, and also uh, in a lot of ways professionally, that um, a lot of the things I got interested in uh, ended up being uh, really beneficial and something that, because they weren't obvious going in, um, that it was going to be applicable. I was just kind of pursuing them because I was interesting. I ended up 
getting a lot better at them than other people because uh, it wasn't something I was doing, you know, to get a promotion or to get a new client or whatever. It was something I was doing just because I, I was really interested in hmm. um, how it worked and why the world worked that way. And, uh, you know, just being able to see uh, through that lens. And so, yeah, I think uh, optimizing for interesting is uh, is not a bad heuristic. Yeah, no, I, I and I think that's very refreshing advice because generally people would say, I don't know, because it, it's it's probably less daunting than, you know, some of the other advice that you hear that, you know, try and optimize for a skill that you're trying to really grow or stuff like that, which can be hard at times. I think the only challenge is that a lot of times people are not as self-aware, right? So building that self-awareness, as you said, is absolutely key. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much, Taylor. This was wonderful. Is there any other advice you'd like to share with people who are you know, still relatively earlier in their careers and trying to figure out what they should be doing? Uh, no, I'll leave it with optimized for interesting. I think that's the <laughs> advice I wish someone had given me. Yeah. All right. So uh, where can people find you online, by the way, Taylor? Uh, sure. So my Twitter profile, Twitter is probably the best place to get in touch with me. I'm at Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, at Taylor Swift, Pearson, P-E-A-R-S-O-N, uh, M-E. And then my website is the same, taylorpearson.me. All right. Well, thank you so much and have a good rest of the day. Thank you for having me. Yep. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Just before you leave, do remember to sign up for our newsletter on our website, learneducatediscover.com, where we share updates on new episodes, a lot of career-oriented resources, and a lot of other inspiring stories and videos and podcasts that we find online. So do check it out at learneducatediscover.com. You'll also find the library of all the other podcasts that we've done in the past on the website. Of course, if you have any questions at all, or if you just want to say hello, you can always email us just drop us a mail at hello at learneducatediscover.com or tweet at us at LED underscore curator. That's LED underscore C-U-R-A-T-O-R. Of course, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash learneducatediscover or you can also subscribe to the podcast on either iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and for your time. And until the next one, Bye-bye.